This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I don't know about you, but even though there's unlimited information available online, I tend to learn best through doing things and actually getting my hands dirty. So if you're interested in making the leap from screens to the land, then I've got an exciting opportunity coming up. I'm going to be teaching some of my favorite subjects this upcoming autumn at the Green Rebel Farm in beautiful Miravet, Spain, a beautiful early-stage centropic agroforestry system in the Mediterranean mountains of Catalonia. From Tuesday the 11th to Sunday the 16th this October, I'll be guiding a five-day deep dive into the regenerative design process with a focus on agroforestry. This course is designed for people who are either considering buying land or who are at the early stages of developing a site and want to ensure that they set off on a profitable, regenerative trajectory. We'll work through the scale of permanence, learning to gather essential information from the landscape, vegetation, and soil. From there, we'll work through hydrological capture and restoration, planning for productive planting and reforestation, business considerations, soil health regeneration, and so much more. All of this, of course, will be taught through hands-on activities, so you leave not only knowing how to develop an effective and profitable design, but also with experience with the work and the skills that are required to make magic happen on the land. This course is almost already full, so don't wait to reserve your spot. Though the early bird discounts are over, there are still ways to save a bit of money if you sign up with a partner or a friend. So don't start your project with digital learning alone. Instead, come and get your hands dirty with inspiring, like-minded people and level up your skills this autumn. You can get all the details by clicking on the link at regenerativeskills.com or on our link tree in the bio on our Instagram. So sign up now and I'll look forward to seeing you in the orchard soon. Hey there everybody and welcome back. Now, it's no secret that the farmer population in Europe and in many other places around the world has been diminishing and growing older for a long time now. There are, however, lots of younger folks who are interested in becoming farmers, but are struggling to get their foot in the door. Barriers to entry such as high land prices, high startup and infrastructure costs, lack of loan options, bureaucratic difficulties in inheritance, and a steep learning curve if you don't already have experience farming are holding a lot of us back. Despite these challenges, though, there are some incredible stories of new farmers who are finding success and fulfillment on the land. They're often the ones pioneering new business models, best practices in ecological management, and a lot more. And so that's why I reached out to Lynn Cassells, who along with her partner Sandra Baer, own and operate Lynbrecht Croft, an award-winning farm in northwest Scotland. Now Lynbrecht Croft is a 150-acre mixed land holding of everything from fields to woodlands to hill ground and bog located in the Cairngorms National Park, and with land ranging from 320 meters to 450 meters above sea level. Now, like many new farmers, Lindbreck has a unique origin story. Lynn and Sandra first met while they were working as rangers for the National Trust in the UK, and soon realized that they shared a dream of living closer to the land. They bought Lindbreck Croft back in March of 2016, which they describe as 100 acres of pure Scottishness, with no experience in farming, but a huge passion for nature and the outdoors. They now raise heritage breeds of cattle and pigs, grow produce, and have become a model farm in their region for ecological production practices. 
Lynn and Sandra also wrote an inspiring book all about their journey of moving onto the land and how they've developed their idea of the farmers that they want to be and their involvement in their community, which you can find through Chelsea Green Books. In this discussion, I speak with Lynn about the initial challenges that they faced in finding land and learning to make a living from it. We talk about the steep learning curve, as well as the resources that they turn to to make it all manageable. Lynn also tells me about the unique challenges that they have in the notoriously harsh climate in northwestern Scotland, and how they've made choices on the farm to mitigate these difficulties. This discussion is full of insightful advice and learning from a unique journey from two farming newcomers who've demonstrated that you can build a farm business from scratch in modern times. So be sure to listen all the way to the end when Lynn gives valuable advice for how other people who dream of starting their farm without any previous experience can do so successfully. And so now I'll hand things over to Lynn Cassells. Let's start from the beginning because from what I know of your story, yourself and Sandra did not go up to Scotland looking to buy a farm. Tell me about how this all got started and what you were looking to do originally. Yeah, so 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 I, I sometimes describe us as accidental farmers. And in fact, in, in the book that we've just written, the very first sentence is we never meant to be farmers. So so kind of cast your, your mind back, I guess, 10 years from now. And it was 2012. It was the year that Sandra and I met and we were living and working down in actually just kind of on the edge of London, working for the National Trust, which is a big conservation charity in the UK. And we were we were working as apprentice rangers at the time. So really kind of practical, outdoorsy kind of role. Um, and we were apprentices, so we were learning kind of on the job about nature and ecology and all that kind of thing. And I think pretty early on from when we met, we had this itch, right? And this itch was to to live really kind of closer to the land. You know, we were, we were in jobs that were quite nice, that were quite practical, that were quite nature based. But we really wanted to, yeah, li- live a kind of a life that was closer to the land, you know, grow our own food, you know, really a dream that so many people have, right? And especially today, so many people have this dream. So we're pretty, um, we're, we're pretty sort of headstrong. So about two years after being together, uh, we decided to really make kind of a bit of a crazy leap and leave our jobs. Um, and we decided to head north to Scotland. And the reason why we were kind of moving to Scotland was because, well, Sandra has some family connection there. Her mother's, um, her mother's from Scotland. So there was that, but basically it was affordability and availability of land, right? Which is a biggest challenge, certainly in this country, that new entrant farmers face. So we thought, right, we've got to go where the land is available, where we've got a chance of buying some found ourselves in Scotland and spent two years just kind of living uh, in the area. We were working as tree planters, really immersed in that time in the whole rewilding movement. Um, but at weekends, we were going to look for land. So we were literally looking on the on the open market and we were looking for about five acres. OK, so the, the vision was chickens kitchen garden and you know we basically would make some seasonal money from like running like a few camping plots you know a little bit of diversification that kind of thing but the focus was always about us growing our own food and being closer to nature so we start looking we find Limbrecht Croft which is the land that we now live and are guardians of and um, didn't have the money to buy it managed to overcome that by getting a, you know, kind of basically emptying every pot that we had and, and a loan from a friend. So that was one kind of challenge overcome. But the second challenge was that it was 150 acres. So it was much bigger than what we'd ever intended on buying. And that's because really we just fell in love with the place. So we found ourselves here 
we had no background in agriculture, like no formal training, no really kind of direct experience. Um, and we didn't have any direct experience either in setting up and running a business. So we had a decision to make, right? So the decision was, do we do what we originally wanted to do, which was chickens, veggie garden, a few camping spots, and then leave the, you know, the other kind of 149 and a half acres to just do its own thing? Or do we actually do all of that plus see if there's a way that we can actually take our passion for growing food and do that across the other 149 and a half acres, but do it in a way that's really beneficial uh, for the land because we had all this nature, ecology, practical experience um, and do it in a way where we can benefit the local community and provide food for them. So that's really the point at which we got to uh, where we then thought, right, how do we do this? And what kind of farmers are we going to become? Well, I'm curious, uh, take a step back a little bit with this original idea of having sure. a much more manageable farm and then making the leap to a much larger commitment to this. Did you start with some clear criteria of what you were looking for and then just throw it out the window? Or were there a few key things that were present that were not present on, let's say, smaller plots that helped you make that decision and decide to really invest in something that perhaps you didn't think you had the resources for in the beginning? Um, so I think really our criteria, I mean, really, honestly, our criteria was pretty loose because we were really driven by what we could afford at the end of the day. So um, obviously we ended up stretching that quite a bit in terms of what we ended up kind of buying and where we ended up becoming. But but a lot of it was dictated by that. Um, we were always really conscious to buy somewhere that had a good location. And I think it's, it's interesting, actually, when I reflect on that now, because we did give that quite a high priority. And I think reflecting on it now, we were there was something in our heads that was saying you need to be in a good location because if you're going to have people coming to you, you need to be easily accessible. If you're going to be in a good location, if you do have things to sell, you need to be you know, in a place where people can easily access your produce. So I think early on, there was some seed in there that, that was set uh, that, that, then, that then has kind of grown into to Limbrek. Um, but really, I think what's interesting thinking about, say, if we'd have come at this from a farming background, okay, we would have been looking at um, the type of land that we would have been uh, buying in terms of its ability to grow crops or or the type of grassland you know here in the UK it's all about kind of improved productive grassland you know we would have had all these kind of preconceptions in our head we didn't have any of that all we had was this basic understanding of nature the understanding that nature is diverse and the acceptance that that is a really great thing and what we found at Limbrek was a diverse land holding not just in terms of habitats but in terms of species diversity so we saw this right as the land of milk and honey we saw this as the land of opportunity other farmers will come here and they will look at it and they will say how on earth do you produce anything here how on earth do you grow anything here if we'd have come at it with that point of view we never would have achieved the kind to grow the kind of business that we have done here so I think actually our loose criteria was actually uh, really quite efficient in the long term, but it gave us the flexibility that had we have come from, say, mainstream, mainstream ag, we wouldn't have had. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm wondering if you had, once you kind of made the decision to get this larger piece of land, did you have the confidence that you could turn this into a series of enterprises that could support 
at least paying back the loan for the land and a livelihood for both of you to stay there full time? Or did it take a lot of work for that to unfold and, and get developed? I, I like your use of the word confidence, okay? <laughs> I would say that uh, we didn't have confidence but we had belief, okay? And I think there's a two, there's a real difference in that because we looked at the land and we had no idea what we were going to do, but we believed that this was possible. We just didn't know how. And some people might say that that's naive, it's blinkered, it's whatever. But I think it's, it's, it's whenever you listen to your gut and it's whenever you listen to your heart and your instinct and you think something here is right, something here is good. I now need to see what I've got and work with it. And I think that's really what we did the confidence came later so we started off basically okay we moved we've moved to a new place we don't know anybody we don't know the landscape we don't know the climate you know we don't know the people we don't know the community we don't know anything so the first thing that we're doing is trying to get into you know meeting people and you know meeting people who aren't in farming, but meeting people who are in farming as well. And we start to ask them questions and we start to say, you know, what do you think of this? What do you do? You know, what, what's the challenges in this area like? And start to ask questions. We then start to use that information and we try and match it up with our practical ecology experience. So we're saying, OK, you know, that neighbor or that farmer is advising us to deep plow. OK, so what does my nature experience tell me? Well, my nature tell, experience tells me that actually soil, we shouldn't really disturb soil. We should keep it covered. So you're starting to see these two kind of approaches and you're starting to compare them both and then whittle them down into the path that we eventually took. But to begin with, we were terrified because we had so many people. You know what it's like in farming? No two farmers are the same no two farmers are the same so everybody does everything differently so they're going oh yeah no, you've, you've got to you know you've got to plow it and then somebody else going oh no you've got to disc it and then somebody else is saying oh no this is full of thatch you've got to burn it and then somebody else is saying oh you've got to harrow it and you know you're just trying to work through all this kind of incredible sort of generosity of knowledge but you're matching that within what is the uh, the system, this wonderful system that is nature and how it does things naturally. And that's what we were kind of trying to do. So the more we got the information, the more we kind of compared the two, we started to get more of a, a clarity in terms of how we would progress here and how we would build the business up. Early on, we had to, in order to access, we, we managed to get a bit of grant funding early on. And early on, we had to write a business plan. And uh, we had to basically start to piece all of this stuff together quite early. And it's interesting now reflecting on that business plan because it's completely different from what we now do, but it's actually very similar in that it was all based on the fundamental fundamentals of diversification uh, of, of, of product produce, which required diversification of animals and all of which would be uh, directly sold by us through telling our story. And so once we kind of got all of those pieces in place, the confidence started to build. I have to be completely honest with you, right? We've been doing this for six years now. <laughs> I still, I still, I still feel unconfident sometimes in what we're doing because sometimes we, we've never been the kind of people that do what everybody else does, you know, ever been that. And, you know, sometimes you do have those kind of, you know, moments where you just go, is this all, I mean, is this, is, is, is it really going to, you know, is it really going to work? You know, you feel so kind of out there. Um, but equally we could never do it any other way. So, so the confidence is growing, but we're not like, yeah, this is 100% how you do everything, because we still kind of go, ah, I'm not sure it is. <laughs> it's so good to admit that. And I think anybody who 
says that they're really confident, especially from such an early stage, is either lying or delusional. <laughs> it takes a long time to build that up. And then, of course, all of the variables that come into running a farm business get thrown at you and then your confidence right. is reset again. Of course. Um, but I'd like to unpack that a little bit more of the process that you went through, because it sounds like all of the advice that you mentioned are none, none of the things that you've actually done. And... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's very useful to have a background in ecology, but in my own work with farmers and farming myself, ecology will get you to a certain point, but it ne won't necessarily pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And if you're just working on reestablishing native habitat or bringing back certain plants, it's difficult to make a business out of that. It's, it's difficult to bring in some sort of profit. How did you start to evaluate the enterprises that you currently have and make sure that there was some kind of financial return in them? So I think that's a really that's a really good question and a really good kind of point to go on to because it's it's really emphasizing early on and something that we knew early on was that farming is a business okay we can do all this incredible stuff we can do all you know we can be regenerative we can build soil we can increase you know invertebrate numbers we can feed people it's great it's we can do incredible stuff but it's a business and and I think we caught the grasp of that pretty early on and one of the reasons why we just got the grasp of it early on was because you know we didn't have any money so every penny counted right I think as well what what our early thoughts were was in order for our business to be resilient, um, it has to be able to stand on its own two feet. Now, the reason why I make this point is because certainly in the UK, in this country, the vast majority of farms are reliant on an annual basic payment subsidy from the government, right? You can get all these other grants, and we've been pretty good at getting some of these other grants, which are like a capital grant for like a project, okay? So building a barn or putting in fences or whatever. And they're like a fixed grant for a fixed project. And you do the, you do it, and then you're done. You're kind of tick, tick the box. But most farms rely on these annual basic payments and without them their business would simply flounder like in the book I talk about you know talking to an accountant friend who said you know of, of all the farmers on their books about 90% are running at a loss you know the, the subsidies are just propping them up so to us as new business owners that seemed really shaky ground and I think I think this what I'm kind of building up into here is that a lot of what we do is is that obvious and is it makes sense and does it cost money okay these are kind of mantras that we repeat all the time so we're looking at different enterprises and we're thinking okay what's easy to start up that costs very little money that we can shift easily and that has a big uh, a big audience okay so eggs pastured eggs easy because you know meat meat eaters eat them vegetarians eat them um they're, they're i call i call them they're like the in food they're like the equivalent of a gateway drug you know you kind of produce a really good egg and then all of a sudden people are interested in more of what you do so, so it's like eggs. Okay, so we, infrastructure is minimal. Hens are cheap. Um, they're easy to move around. We don't need a lot of experience. It's different to a Highland cow, which has got big horns and is, you know, 10 times the size of you. Um, and we, the infrastructure we need for selling them, easy. We live on a really uh, busy road. It's a tourist route. We build a little wooden box at the top of the track out of recycled materials. Boom, you know, you've got a shop. Um, so that was, a, it's a very, very tiny example. But what happens is, you know, all of a sudden you get one or two or three people a week that get hooked on your eggs. And then they tell other people. And then they start to become the core kind of uh, center of your marketing and your business campaign, okay? 
So that's how we started. So we started on the eggs um, and we could easily, you know, we could start to number crunch then. Doesn't matter if you've got 10 hens. If, if you've got 10 hens, you've got enough figures to then start to extrapolate and build up from there. And that's what we did. Um, so it was building up from 10 hens to 20 hens to 30 hens. Your question earlier about confidence, this was us growing in confidence. It was, it was expanding our livestock. We're talking small numbers, but it doesn't matter. It's all relative. We then start up um, because we're we, we're because we're reading. Okay, we're reading people about people like Richard Perkins and the Joel Salatins, and they've got their eggmobiles, and we're thinking, hey, we've got tons of moss in the grassland. An eggmobile would be epic, but ooh, we need another thirty-five hens for that. That's a lot of eggs. Do we do we have a you know do we have a a, a customer base to sell that to? So because you know farming is so busy, if you're a direct seller you want to be able to sell your produce at the drop of a hat because you haven't got time for constant marketing and sales. That's a full-time job. So we decided to start up this thing called uh, Egg Club, which is a subscription-based club. Really, really simple model whereby we looked at our local town and we put a, a, a heads up on Facebook and whatever. Um, and we said, right, people, um, we're starting the subscription club. Uh, you pay this amount per month and you'll get a box of eggs or two or three, how many you want, delivered straight to your door who's up for it so we fill the first tranche of egg club that means that we can justify getting the first lot of hens egg club grows arms and legs so we can get the next 35 hens and then we can fill the next 35 places in egg club what we're seeing and what is a confidence builder and what is a business builder is every month we've got money coming in you know, the whole time what we're trying to do is is wean ourselves off out off farm work and wean ourselves into full time work. So all of a sudden now we're getting our off farm work salary. We're getting our on farm work salary. And that is, a again, a confidence booster. And we started to build it up from there. So every time we took on a new enterprise, let's say, for example, our Highland cattle, it was you know, it was looking at, well, what, what are we going to get from this? We're going to get, you know, a really nice produce. Why are we getting Highland cattle? Well, Highland cattle, obviously, they've got incredible, you know, as large herbivores, they've got incredible ecological benefits, but um, they can provide us with a really high quality, pure Highland beef, not a cross, pure Highland beef. So we have that to market. Uh, we're going to be grass fed. We're going to be tree leaf fed, you know, who, who feeds tree leaves to their cows? Well, we do. You know, all of a sudden you've got this kind of new and kind of quirky angle of, of kind of selling your produce. Um, we're we're going to choose Highland cattle because they're hardy. They're hairy. They don't require any housing. Uh, they're cheap to keep. They literally require a little bit of hay in the wintertime. So our costs are low. You know, people often ask, well, how, you know, how much money do you make or do you, do you make money? And I always say, well, we make a living. And the way I think about it is, yeah okay making money is part of it but actually it's important to not spend any money you know you, you you're always like making money making money making money um but actually what about not spending any so highland cattle we can buy in at an affordable price we carry them for a, you know a, a few years because it's low cost we sell it at an absolute premium so so these are the kind of things that you start to build into your business so you, then you've got so you've got eggs you've got beef we diversify into honey you know we're, we're we're kind of we get some hives on we buy secondhand hives we join the local beekeepers and everybody's you know wanting to come and help us for free you're learning the skills uh, you're building up slowly and then you have this incredible produce to sell which is honey which is you know from a wild landscape which is from bees that have foraged and help pollinate 
create some of the new trees that you've planted and you're building that story. And this is where I think it's really nice to build what it is that you're doing into nature, into showing everybody that what you're doing and how you're doing it is in harmony with and in corresponding with nature so that it is paying the bills because you're not trying to change your ecosystem artificially. You're trying to work with it. You're trying to learn with it and you're trying to work with your animal team to deliver those outcomes. So that's a little, that, that's a kind of a little kind of introduction as to how we started to think about things and then how we started to build it up from there. Amazing. And so you did a combination of both small trials in order to establish a little marketing Basically, it starts to act as a marketing vehicle, especially in the case of the eggs, it sounds like. Yeah. And it grows from there. Did you work to pre-sell the cattle that you brought on before you brought them on? Or it was it something else that you started just small enough and started to develop the market through the expansion? So I would say, um, so, so the first time we, we sold uh, beef, uh, we just put one animal away to slaughter because we didn't really know you know, we, 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 were, we were still very early in, in our kind of, people didn't really know a lot about what we were doing. So it was just one animal that we went to slaughter. We didn't know at that stage as well, anything about the butchery side of things. And I mean that in terms of, you know, we since progressed that, and I'll talk about that in a little while, but we didn't know, I mean, whenever you go to a butcher, right? And you say, I've got a Highland cow or whatever. And they say, well, what do you want? And you just go, meat you know you don't you don't you don't who knows what a butchery cut list looks like right you know and and so so we were learning all that kind of stuff like oh well sausages come from, sausage meat comes from here this steak comes from here or you can't have that because that goes into that and so we had a lot of that to learn early on and it was the same with pigs as well we run rare beef pigs here as well what we've now shifted to with uh the pigs so we've we've we sent our first pigs off to slaughter in 2017. We've sent our first uh, cattle to slaughter in 2018. We're now in 2022. With our pigs, we, we will part pre-sell because we do the butchery on site. So we can control exactly what we're cutting, what, what our kind of produce is going to look like, the numbers of things that we're going to get. So we will pre-sell some of that. And that's just a really nice way of kind of getting that out of, out of, out of, out of the way. With the butcher, with the with the beef, we we part butcher and we still work with a, a professional butcher as well because it's a it's a much more complicated animal. Um, but we've built up our customer base so much now that that last year we shifted. I think we did an autumn release of of Highland beef. We shifted about six hundred kilos of beef in an hour upon release. So what we've now kind of got it's it's, it's an interesting situation. Okay, so we now have a marketplace a customer base that is much bigger than we can cater for much bigger than we can cater for uh we released pork uh on on monday um and we had pork from eight eight pigs to go out and it all sold out within two hours okay so it's it's it's, it's gone we get it out and that's put us into an interesting position because you think right is the solution to grow 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 produce 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 more animals more animals more animals bigger animals bigger animals bigger animals or is your decision to stay the size that you are explain why you're doing that because you're not wanting to increase stock because of you know regenerative principles you're trying to you know you don't want to you don't you don't want to degenerate the land let's say um and you start to you know you start to don't you know get the additional income that you're needing for your whole farm business which at the end of the day is 
built around food to supply you with the additional income that you have. And that's what we, that's the route that we've gone down. So we pre-sell some of our produce um, where we can, but let's just say I don't lose sleep anymore um, whenever we're about to do a produce release. That's amazing. And it's such a good insight into the thought process behind where you develop your farm once you've established a market for the products that you make. And, mm. you know, this is something that I learned partly through Richard Perkins and some others who teach online, do you expand or do you intensify? And it has to be in line with the context that you've defined for yourself and the overall goals of what you're trying to achieve with your farm, which I can tell are not to be bigger, make more money. And mm. maybe maybe let's, let's check back in with those. What are yeah. the defining aspects of your farm that help you make these types of critical decisions? So I guess there's a few things really. And, and I think you know, all of this stems from the very first question that you asked me was, you know, how, how do we get to this point? What was our original vision? And our original vision still applies to what we do. Okay, so our our basis here is to grow our own food. I think about this a lot and I think about farmers and farming a lot and, and where we're at in farming today. And I think, you know, really as a farmer, okay, if, I, if I'm, if I'm going to call myself a farmer, my expertise is growing and producing food. That's my absolute area of expertise, you know, so, so nobody's better at it than me because that's what I do every day. Um, therefore, in, in my head, um, my priority uh, using my expertise would be to grow my own food, right? Because nobody does it better than me. Therefore, I can grow the absolute best food for myself. And if I can do that, then I'm fueling my body with really, really kind of good energy, really high nutrients, which is going to keep me physically healthy, mentally healthy, to then kind of give me the energy that I need to, to run my farm business. So our our the still at the core of what we do is growing our own food, our kitchen garden, our polytunnel. Uh, you know, we spend hours in the you know, winter or in this in this in the in the in the autumn harvesting and dehydrating and preserving and all that kind of stuff. So so that's still there. Everything has kind of grown out from that. It's kind of like I guess our business model is kind of like a sunflower, right? You've got the kind of the, the seeds in the center and that's us and that's that's our group that's our passion for growing food. You then have all these petals that come out of it and they are all around that kind of central focus, which is growing food. So you've got the, the beef enterprise, you've got the chicken, you know, the, the layers enterprise, you've got the honey enterprise, you've got the pork enterprise. We then diversify because we're really passionate about getting the story out there and reconnecting people with their food and the, the land. We then do tours. We wrote our own course. Uh, so it's public tours and private tours. We had an old building on site that we renovated that's now a, a long-term rental. You know, we do talks. We, we've just written a book. So everything kind of there's lots of stuff that's all interconnected but what I would say and this this brings everything once again back to nature is that it is my thinking that our business isn't just built on the foundations of working with nature it's built on the foundation of, of what nature is and nature is an inherently diverse collaborative system and so we like to run a business that is you know diverse and it's collaborative not just the elements within each other but out with of that. So, you know, going back to the, the conversation of um, we, we don't produce enough people, we don't produce enough, you know, for the marketplace. Um, our, our, our kind of dream would be that 
there would be other little farms like ours in the area that would pop up and go, hey, I like what they're doing and that seems to work. So I'm going to go and talk to them and see if there's some way that we could work together. And so what we're doing is we're, we're starting to kind of then build a collective of small farmers who are producing the kind of food that we have shown is in such high demand that we're not even scratching the surface of it. And it's food that people are willing to pay a price for that is closer to the value of what it truly costs to produce in a way in which you can make an economically viable living from it and you start to work together so so that's you know so that to me is what kind of farming with nature is all about as well as that so our vision is still food our vision will still be food and i think as well going back to so we use all of those elements whenever we're making decisions you know we think about that business model and we think is, is that kind of going in the right direction but equally we have been very impacted by and very driven by the idea of writing a context. So, you know, what you're referring to that Richard Perkins talks about from Alan Savory, writing that kind of holistic context and saying, you know, what do you want your life to look like? What, what, and how can you deliver that? And I think at the end of the day, because we are so driven by, you know, good food, by providing their own our own fuel for our home uh we're, we're driven by you know building really positive social relations we're driven by having enough money to pay the bills every month it's a real kind of collective vision so we'll use that as a basic document um and our guts to just say is this right Amazing. That offers some great clarity and also a fantastic example for others who may be getting started in this, because if you don't have that clear context to work from from the beginning, there are so many decisions and variables that come up in this journey of developing a farm, especially if, like in your situation, you don't have previous experience that can lead you down entirely different routes that can cause you to lose the core of what you're trying to do. Totally. And it, having that in place uh, can make this a lot easier and give you yeah. something to ground you when it seems like, you know, you're being pulled from so many different directions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Second, maybe you can hear it's starting to hail right next <laughs> to me and I'm probably going to get some thunderclaps in a minute. So oh, wow. I'll, uh, I'll maybe edit this out later. <laughs> Go ahead. It's, it's, it's interesting just, just having this conversation with you. So one of the things that we do um, is it is it is it in the in in Scotland the the Scottish government have this sort of um, what they call a farm advisory service and new entrants in Scotland can apply to have a mentor under this kind of funded scheme. So um, we are mentors for 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 some new entrants and we went to see a couple a few weeks ago and um, they were just kind of setting up on there. It was just kind of quite a small farm, and we spent. I mean, it was it was a great day, but we walked around and one of the one half of the couple was particularly kind of energetic and was like we could do this 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 you know and real 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 of these all this stuff and I remember kind of getting home and I just thought my head is fried you know there was so much going on I've I've, I've been since I'm still unpicking it all and I thought that is where having that context written you know it's it's like a mind map crazy mind map and then you whittle it down you whittle it down whittle it down it is so powerful and yet so few people do it. And, you know, even if you just do it once and then you kind of reevaluate it from there, it's, it's so important because otherwise you just, you're just whizzing around and you get nothing done. Yeah, that's been absolutely my experience too, working with clients from all over the world. It's the commonality of what 
is something that I've identified from people who go far with their projects and other people who get really excited, put a bunch of energy and investments into something. Maybe they get somewhere with the project. Maybe it has a little bit of traction, but oftentimes it fizzles out because there's too many other options that come up. They end up like magpies kind of chasing the coolest thing that they see on YouTube. Right. Yeah. And it's like yeah. you get you get very overwhelmed. I, it happens to me all the time, too. Like, yeah. oh, I could go down the route of like grafting and propagation of trees or I could go here and start with livestock and all of it could work. Yeah. But is it right for you? And until you get in touch with what it is that you're trying to accomplish and what it is that you have the capacity to do. Yeah there's too many options to be able to decide or to put the adequate amount of focus and effort to make any of them work. hundred percent. You're absolutely right. Okay. So let's go now to the learning journey because Mm -hmm. you came from a fantastic base of ecological understanding, you and Sandra Mm -hmm. both, but -hmm. farming was really new. Mm -hmm. What were some of the key resources, learnings, or support that you received Mm -hmm. that turned this ecological knowledge into a business that could start to support what you're doing? So we start to, so we get here in March, 2016, and we start to, um, to, to try and figure out what, what we're going to do and where we're going to, where we're going to go quite early on. We figure out that mainstream ag is not going to be, uh, the route that we're going to go down. It's just something that right. It's just something not right about it. And also it's not going to work on our land because our land is not this, you know, kind of classic kind of farm setup. It's rough. It's rugged. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's not going to work. So what are we going to do? So we start to, you know, get on the internet, we start to Google and we start to have a look and see if there's anybody in Scotland doing anything interesting. Um, We start to, at that stage, hear the word, regenerative agriculture by this in certainly in the uk at this point it's not a it's not a big thing at all okay um and around that time as well we start to learn about alan savory and the holistic management aspect so we find one farm in scotland that's practicing this uh, over on the west coast so we take ourselves over there uh meet these people and we start to see things like um holistic plant grazing in action you know we start to see mini eggmobiles and we start to visualize that this is something that's possible um you know in, in, in our climate, in our country, but there's not a lot of people doing it. So we start to guess, I guess, kind of grow from that. So we, we start to come across, I think, I think it's fair to say that two of the, the biggest influencers in our, um, in our journey have been Joel Salatin and have been Richard Perkins. So Richard, from the point of view, so Sandra used to, you know, love Richard Perkins. She, I, I used to find her every night, like watching the latest Richard Perkins video. Um, and, and she was really inspired by his approach to, um, to, to be a really kind of really kind of um, ingenious about what he does, but being very efficient. I think Richard is very, very good at being very, very efficient. Um, I was reading uh, Joel Salatin, How to Farm, uh, which I, I just I love that book because it's so, so easy to read. It's so easy to read. And Joel's talking about the basics of things like sales and marketing. And, you know, I love how simple he makes it. And so these are kind of two influencers that we have in terms of the efficiency of the business side of view, view, the sales and marketing side of view. From both of them, it's the finance and the economic side. And then what we're doing is using our ecological knowledge and our practical skills 
to weave all of that into it. Um, and, and that's really kind of how we then started to build. And then you're, you're kind of getting into sort of 2018, 2019, people are starting to talk about regenerative agriculture more. We're starting to hear more about, I would say in this country, you know, the Gabe Browns and Charles Massey and those kinds of books are starting. So Dirt to Soil's coming out called The Reed Warblers coming out. Incredible Chelsea Green authors. What what a platform to share. <laughs> Amazing. I'm just like, wow, that's like my life goal done. Um, <laughs> this is perfect. It saves me from having to do the plug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. So you're starting to kind of get all of these people coming into it and you feel the swell is starting to build and, and it's really starting to grow. And more and more people around the UK are starting to come out of the woodwork and they're going, well, I kind of do that and I do this and you know you start to sort of mainstream or non-mainstream things start to become mainstream I think what's interesting now is that so so our learning kind of balloons at that point but but also we're now at a point right where we're running the farm so we're learning on the job all the time you know we're learning every day from our cattle we're learning every day from our pigs we're learning from our hens we're learning from our bees we're learning from our kitchen garden so we're actually now we started off doing a lot of theoretical learning now most of our learning and i would say still now is practical based learning which is lovely because you're you're really feeling connected with the the team around you i think what's interesting now in terms of the regenerative agriculture swell which is you know i would say a movement that we definitely feel uh, allegiance to and part of is what does that term now mean because its use has become so widespread and it's interesting farming in this country is becoming under I guess uh, across the world is becoming under a lot of criticism um, because of climate change because of the condition of our soils and it's interesting to see how farmers are shifting to using the word regenerative more what I don't know is how much that practice are, practices are actually regenerative uh, so I think that's where kind of like the the next kind of stage is going to be for learning for anybody getting into the regenerative world is what actually is regenerative because it's changed a lot even since we started out well let's unpack what it means then for you where do you see the trajectory of the development of the ecosystem that you steward based on the information that you have in ecology but also the impact that you see that you're capable of making with the enterprises that you manage so for us i think it's really quite simple um for us, the, the, the regenerative element, I guess, is two part. So it's 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 land part and it's people part. Um, so so the land element, you know, it, it's pretty easy to 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 to, to review, to assess, uh, to understand if your practices are being regenerative. And again, I, I you know, I, I would say it's things like, you know, for us, it's things like how many worms are in the soil. Because generally, if you've got a lot of good, a lot of worms in the soil, you know your soil is kind of healthy. Are your are your cowpats full of insects? You know, are you seeing lots of birds in your ecosystem? Are you able to count more than you know ten types of grasses in your in your pasture? All these kinds of things you can start to see if your impact is regenerative because you're wanting to see that uh, that kind of diversity blossom and bloom every year. I think for us, what we also really focus on is the impact of regenerative agriculture having a regenerative impact 
on societies and on particularly for us it's our local community so that is why we went down the route of only selling our produce locally so we don't ship we don't we don't post um and that's mainly because our kind of core belief is that our food is there to nourish and regenerate our community. It's also a place, Limbrek is also a place where we invite people to local, national, international, whoever, to come and learn about food production and feel how they can play a direct part in regenerating the world through the very food that they buy. Simple thing like, you know, don't choose barn eggs, choose organic eggs or choose, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's having these kind of conversations. I think what I've kind of started to really think about is where does the where does the change in farming start? Where does the shift to regenerative agriculture start? Does it start at one end with the farmer or does it actually start at the other end with the people that buy the produce? And I still can't kind of get that clear in my head. Sometimes I think maybe it starts with the people that buy the produce because at the end of the day, we are a business that provides a product and the product that we provide, uh, if it's popular, people will buy it. So if we want to create something that lots of people will buy, we need, we need to kind of educate them that the best food comes from the happiest animals that have the best life on the best soils in the best climate building diversity. So actually, do we need to work more on the customers to drive the change towards regenerative agriculture? Or do we still need to focus on the farmers to get them to change? In the middle, and this is where the block is, right? This is where the big block is, is you've got supermarkets and big ag. And that is where I think it's fair to say, you know, you've, you've got the you've got the sandwich, right? You've got the, the bread at either side and then you've got the, the whatever you want to describe it in the middle. And that is a huge, massive industry in terms in terms of big ag. It's, you know, fertilizer companies, seed companies, tractor companies, you know, everything that you need to farm companies. And then you've also got the supermarkets who are you know, selling your produce at rock bottom prices and giving you, you know, a penny a time. But that is where all the money is. So how do we how do we transition out of that? And the only way that I see that we can do it, and this is where I always talk about us, we just do our thing with the with the community that we have in the location that we are. We bypass both of those blocks and we 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 create we create that direct connection. And that way it works. And that way, we believe that our impact is truly regenerative because we're doing the practical work, we're doing the feeding work, and we're connecting the two. Well, I love the way that you explain that. This is something that I think about a lot and have been exploring on the show for a long time. And I really agree with that answer. And I'm also curious what some of the decisions that you took early on that have been some of the most effective or most valuable for both your business and your quality of life, but also for this trajectory towards the regeneration that you just described. That's a big question. <laughs> um, so I think early on, um, we, uh, we we always so, so in terms in terms of the business side, it was always about selling. It was always about selling direct selling, and I think that has been, and we've never diverged from that. We've had so many people say, "I'll stock your produce in my shop. I'd like to. I'd like to do this, that, and the other." We've always said. No, we're, we're kind of keeping that direct selling. And we can do that because we've stayed at the size that we're at. You know, it's just me and Sandra. We don't have a big team that works here. Um, that's a decision that we've made ourselves for, for our own quality of life because, you know, 
Limbrek as much as it's a kind of a multi kind of diverse thriving business where people are coming and going all the time it's still our home and we're very protective of that and we're very protective of our space and you know our, our personal kind of lives and our personal relationships as well so so by keeping that direct selling and staying at the size at which we are for that has been super 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 effective I think as well one thing that we've we've really and I'm not saying that we get this right every time because I don't think we do um is we've really stayed true to putting um putting ourselves first and the reason why I say sometimes I don't think we do that very well is that sometimes this opportunity will come along and you think oh let's you know we've got to try that we've got to kind of take that opportunity and then you realize that it's just not quite right and that I guess is the challenge of 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 running a really diverse business is that you have this tendency to spread yourself so thin and you have a you're, you're in danger of running into a situation where you do lots of things really really badly and we've certainly been in that situation or nearly been in that situation before so I think but we've reset. We've always reset. So we've always reset and we've always kind of been able to pull it back and go, no, right. You know, what is it we're trying to do here? Right. We're still always, we're still passionate about growing our own food. Right. How do we build that back? But hey, what are the bills doing this month? You know, what, what, what kind of money do we need to be making? And we really try and kind of balance it all out. I think another thing that we've always said that we would do, and I got this from I got this from Joel Salatin, but also from Richard Perkins, is that we've always maintained our independence. Now, for us, um, that's been a really strong thing. Okay, so we have we have a we have a name, we have a logo. People people know who we are. You know, people identify how we farm with our name and you know the the little kind of you know visual that we have. Um, we're not certified by anybody. Okay, so we're not organic. We're not pasture fed. We're not you know scotch beef we're not any kind of certification and that is because we've always wanted to maintain flexibility and an independence ourselves um sometimes that makes you feel like you're an island and that could be quite uh an unnerving intimidating experience so we we try to we try to kind of tread that line very very carefully of maintaining our independence but not being not being um, uncollaborative, if that's even a word, uh, and that, but but I think that's been really really important. So that means we we just keep our our freedom to do what it is that we want to do. And that actually leads right into the flip side of that question, which is, what are some of the things that you wish you knew from the beginning that would have helped you avoid some of the mistakes that I'm sure came up in the process? <laughs> How dare you? We made mistakes. What? <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw the book. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Uh, we still make mistakes. We make mistakes all the time. Um, so I think, um, you know, really, I'm going to answer this question honestly. And I would say that, honestly, I don't think there's anything that we wish we would have known or we wish we would have done differently because that would have impeded in the learning that we've had and it would not have brought us to the point at which we're at. Um, I think one of the things that I maybe would have liked to have known more, but probably wouldn't have changed anything was that we're never going to have a holiday or we certainly haven't managed it for the last six years. We're getting there. We're working on it. But I think um, I think had we have known very honestly how difficult this would have been, 
I think had we have known how many challenges we were going to face, and I don't just mean, you know, emotional challenges or physical challenges, but, you know, financial challenges. I mean, any, any kind of challenge you can think of, really. If we'd have known all of those things, I don't know what Limbrek would look like. And I'm not sure to some extent that we would have done it because that, that, that little air of naivety matched with that core belief and determination is basically what got us to this point so I think I think it's a good thing to reflect on learnings and I think it's a good thing to think I would have done this differently or how what would I say to people actually sometimes you just have to go for it and you just have to really stay true to who you are but be very sensible about it at the same time so like one of the okay one of the classic pieces of example or one of the classic people pieces of um advice that I always give people to start when they start farming is they say well you know how am I going to pay for this and and we always say work off farm it's not what you want to do it's really not what you want to do you don't you want to be here but it's easy money and what you need is easy money you need to not worry about the money that's coming in your challenge is time but time will come. But at the minute, you cannot get yourself into financial difficulties. So, you know, and that's something that we did. And that's something that I'm so glad that we did do rather than what other people have done. And it's worked for them. And that's great is take the leap and go, right, I've got enough money for a year. That's and that's what I'm, I'm going to start up and I'm going to set up because I know I've got, you know, I've got this money for a year. I mean, to me, that would just be like countdown. You know, I'd just be going 364 days, 363 days. Whereas off farm work, it's your choice when you leave or you go or you reduce or you increase or whatever. Uh, so so also all sorts of different learnings. No, that's that's good. That's really realistic. And I think it's much more reflective of how most people build up their farms from scratch, mm. especially if they don't have a lot of experience. I know that that was my experience when I was sure. in Guatemala with my friends and we did the homesteading thing into farming. It took me a while uh, to, to be able to spend more time on site, but yeah. luckily my my job was also in line with the skill set that I was working with on the farm as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, you find a way to make it work. And if it's important enough, you're also going to make those sacrifices until it does work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I'd like to go back to something that you've mentioned a few times now, and that is essential to pretty much everyone's journey here. And that is some sort of focus on community. I know that's a big focus for you. And clearly, you've made some limiting decisions in your business in order to make connections with your community a priority. I know that was part of your learning journey that you mentioned as well. Did you always realize just how important of an element it was going to be? Or is it something that you learned as you started into these endeavors? It it wasn't something that we'd started out thinking was going to be important. No, not at all. When we started out, that initial dream um, was, was really all about us. It was all about what we want. It was actually it was all about stepping back from the world. We were living in an area right at the very start, you know, on the edge of London, which has, you know, millions and millions of people, a huge kind of urban spread. We wanted to step back from the world, almost kind of not hide away because we're social beings, but we, we really didn't want to be out there. We wanted it to be t- sort of just us focusing on nature and doing our own thing. Um, I think we started to realize when we started farming, just how important having people around you is we've had a number of situations whereby it's been midnight something's happened um, and we've been on the phone to a neighboring farmer and if we weren't able to pick up the phone and speak to him about it 
you know, we would be in trouble. Or if we had, I don't know, a, a delivery coming or we needed 50 bales of hay collected, you know, we haven't got a tractor. We need some of our neighbors to help us out in that situation. And we learned that pretty quickly. Um, what we then realized was that we've made these connections with the farming community, but actually we really need to grow that now into the, you know, the, 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 the non-farming community. And that is, you know, the people that are going to, that are going to buy our food. So you start thinking about it, first of all, you know, from a social point of view, but then also from a business side and you think, well, I need to start to get to know these people because, you know, I'm going to have produce to sell and I need a marketplace, blah, blah, blah. So then you start to kind of grow that element. But then I think what we started to connect was the the bigger picture vision, which we felt, I guess, compelled to, to share and drawn to share, you know, again, why we've written the book, which is this disconnect between people and their food and people and nature, you know, people and the climate, you know, all these kinds of big, big issues that were are now kind of being talked about more and more. And so we start to see that as being our role is not just being community members in the farming community. It's not just being community members in our kind of wider non-farming community. It's now taking on a role of storytellers. So we're taking on this role of sharing our story and how we produce food with a community that is around us but is now also bigger than us so it's you know our national community our, our kind of worldwide community so we have these kind of tiers of different communities in which we're involved in but they're all so super important because I think again it comes back to that I guess that dilemma that I was explaining earlier in that where does the change in farming happen does it far start with farmers or does it start with the customers and I think we've got to have a foot in both camps to really drive the change as effectively as possible. So we're, yeah, so we're friends with everybody. <laughs> nice. Hopefully. Have there been any activities or efforts that have been especially effective in connecting with community? Um, just so always, always is, is honesty, honesty and openness. So, so I, I, I think this is where my own um, natural ability comes in because I'm from Ireland. Okay. So my, my, my superpower is drinking lots of tea and talking to people. So those are the two things that I love doing the most. Um, and, and I think honesty and openness and conversation goes an awful long way in the world. Okay. I think particularly what I've learned is that it goes an even longer way when it comes to farming, because so many people have no idea about how their food is produced. OK, so we see these images on TV and we see these images of like chickens in cages and people know they kind of associate that. But, you know, they'll st they're still OK to, to go into the shop and, and buy a cake that's actually been made with eggs from those hens. That, that somewhere the, that connectivity drops off. And so what, what, what we do is we try and always share the honest story of everything that we do and everything that we produce. So we say to our customers, for example, I'm constantly giving them lots of really random information, probably of which the vast majority, they're just really not wanting. But, you know, I'm always, you know, we're always kind of sharing that they're getting this feed, uh, they can range in this area, they're, they're doing this work, you know, be it either the eggmobile or the, or the homestead hens, um, you know, they're doing this, that and the other. And then it's saying to people, 
come and see us. So we had an open day uh, for, for our egg club members. We called it All Aboard the Eggmobile. And we just said to people, look, come and come and see the hens, come and see the different types of hens, look inside the eggmobile, here's the feed that they eat. Do you want to see what's in the feed that they eat? Um, and we just talk about people. And so I think what we run here is a really, I like to think what we run here is a totally open and honest transparent business food business that has an has a has a goal of of course maintaining and increasing customers and demand but actually it's a goal which has a much bigger picture global impact and um and it's just it's just a story that's wonderful yeah it's it's reflective of the unique situation that you're in but some overall truisms that i think can be applied to any type of community connections or dynamics. And that leads me to ask, what advice would you give to someone who is considering getting into farming for the first time? It's a really great question. Um, so I try to think back of where we were whenever we were starting out. And, and, and it's something that I've reflected on a lot as we've been talking today. And that is, first of all, being very true and honest about how it is that you want your life to look you know what why are you going into farming is it in our case it was about a passion for growing food and and a love of nature those have stayed right at the very core of what we're doing so I think you have to be super super clear about your core vision and then how it is that you want your life to look so do you want to uh do you want to go into farming whereby your main focus is on financial return and you're not really too worried about how you're kind of going to get there but you want to be kind to nature along the way then that's the kind of route that you need to really look into and learn about so read people that do it you know go and visit farmers that do it that do the kind of farming that you want to do and that's the kind of the best route to to, to kind of go down in that um i think learn i think i think on reflection we asked a lot of people for advice we took very little of it because we ended up you know sort of figuring our own path out but never discredit that advice because that advice is still learning for you to say no i i have learned that and i now i now reject that or that's not right for me it's still learning it's still really really important to, it's, it's almost even as important to learn all the stuff that you don't want to do as it is to help you figure out what it is that you do want to do. Um, I think the other thing that I would say is that, you know, the, 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 the biggest block uh, to getting into farming is access to land. You know, it, 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 it's, we get asked all the time, how do I get access to land? And you know what my answer now is? I, I just, I don't know what the solution is. You know, I know what the problems are, but I don't know what the solution is. But what I would say to anybody is you just have to keep on plugging. You know, we were in this similar situation. We just had to keep on trying. I've always been a firm believer of open as many doors as you can, because you're the one that closes them. If you haven't opened the doors, you don't know which ones you can close and which ones you want to keep open. So the idea is keep, just do not take no for an answer. Keep looking, look on the market, look for tenancies, you know, approach people with land. You just have to keep trying because this is 
this is not an easy field to get into if you're not you know born into it or a family in it or whatever but that doesn't mean that it's it's not possible and i think there's a growing movement you know, last year okay last year for example we ran one of our courses and we had a guy on it uh who had run a company that had a turnover of 100 million a year he's retired he's now buying up land in parts of england and his vision is to eventually um uh, separate that land up into small scale farmers, into small scale farms. So, you know, there are people starting to get an awareness of, 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 of what's happening. And there are people, you know, on the other side who have got money who are starting to look at their land holdings and think, what can I do for the world? What can I do for the community? So you just never know what opportunity uh, will come your way, but never, ever, ever stop believing and stop trying. Just simply don't do it. Oh, that's such an inspiring message. I love that you said that. And I think it's also really important for people to be open to unconventional configurations of how to get access to land now. Yes. You know, and very well may be outside of your ability to to purchase land. Yeah. Um, but there are increasing options of collaborations with landowners, yeah. leasing opportunities, uh, starting up small enterprises with people who already run farms that have the capacity to, to intensify or to diversify in that way. Yep. And this is something that we're constantly exploring within the network that we have in Europe. And I think there's a lot of potential there as well. So, yeah, you know, just being open to the dream may not look like immediately getting your perfect five acres, just like in your case, yep. it may look like something completely different, but that there is a lot of opportunity in starting small, learning some fundamentals, yeah. proving to yourself that A, you really want to do this because a lot of people without farming experience have not proven that to themselves yet. And yeah. they should really try it smaller before they, you know, take such a large financial risk as actually buying in. Yeah. Um, but I think there will, will continue to be more interesting opportunities of configurations like this as the demand and the awareness for the quality of the food that gets produced in this way continues to grow. Yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And I think it, it the, these things never look like how you think they're going to be. And I, I sort of it reminds me of the conversation that we had earlier about how, you know, I said that Limbrek is not a standard looking farm. OK, you know, we have a neighbor farm and his, his fields are beautifully green. They're nibbled down. You know, everything's kind of manicured and it's very kind of in, in, intensive or more moving towards that. Whereas Limbrek is higgledy piggledy, rough and ready. But I, I just want to read you something that 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 um, that just we, we got a few weeks ago. So, so our book came out and we had a review in uh, The Telegraph, which is one of the big kind of British newspapers. Um, the guy who wrote the review is a farmer and he actually came to see us. Um, he actually came to see us last year. So he knew about the place that he'd been to whenever he was asked to write the review. And he started off and he said, the road to Limbrecht Croft winds through some of the worst farming country in Britain. OK, I, I love that sentence because that was not what we saw. We didn't see worst farming country in Britain. We saw, oh, look at all this incredible diverse habitat. But it didn't look like how it should. OK, um, he then says it is in a very beautiful part of the Cairngorms, but to my lowland farmer's eye, anybody would have to be certifiably mad to attempt to earn a living there. OK, so he's looking at this land and he's going, you're never, ever going to do that. He says, when I visited last summer, I arrived armoured by a number of prejudices about certain types of crofting stereotype, good lifers and starry eyed dreamers. 
on meeting Lynn Castles and her partner Sandra Bear and seeing the bountiful kitchen garden and the pork, beef and eggs being carefully coaxed out of the barren hillside and the sensitive tree and hedge planting, I was swiftly brought down to earth with a bump. The girls on the hill know their stuff and could teach many of us a thing or two. He then goes on to write a few more things, but I particularly like this, this sentence, which I think is really powerful. Um, and he says, as they became sucked into a highland life, live closer to nature, they learn the necessary skills to create a thriving business on the croft that supports the two of them well enough for them to give up their other jobs, something that a conventional approach to agriculture with extensive beef and sheep grazing would not provide. So he's basically looking at Limbrek, he's coming and he's going, this is beautiful, nightmare, you're never going to survive here farming. He then sees people that are doing it differently. It's not a huge scale, but they're doing it enough that they're able to pay their council tax every month they're able to pay the bills every month and he's going interesting and then he connects that directly to nature and to having this existence in this farm business that's in harmony with nature and he specifically says if they were doing this conventionally it wouldn't work and we've had so many people come here and this was before we came here full time and they, they looked at our 150 acres and went oh well you're gonna have to you're, you know you're always gonna have to have off farm income and you know I always remember thinking, but it's 150 acres, you know, it might not be prime arable land, but that's a lot of surely the stuff that we can do here. And yeah, it, it all. But but again, it was this mindset and it's, it's important. It's so important that whenever you're getting into farming right at the start, be that blank canvas, be that open book, not just in terms of not just in terms of the style of farming that you might get into, but what the land should look like, because it doesn't have to be that way. That's such a powerful illustration. And I, I think it really goes to show that what is often listed as a disadvantage from having a lack of experience in farming or having this preconceived notion of what a farm should look like can, you know, it can discount you from having success on the land. Whereas it seems like the opposite mindset seems to be the case where you are, where thinking that it has to be what the other farms look like and has to be done intensively in a commercial way is the only way to scratch out a living in this difficult landscape. And, you know, the, the, the proof is in the pudding. Your farm is a, a wonderful testament to what is possible when you have the ability to see the potential in what nature can do and really invest in your community and doing things at a, um, a level and an integrity that connects with what people really want to be eating now. It's yeah. uh, it's such a wonderful example. And, and the book is a wonderful story of how it's come about. Thank can you. you tell our listeners how they can learn more about your farm and how they can get in touch and find other resources? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the headline news is that we have just written a book. So that's the best way to find out about our story. So it's called Our Wild Farming Life. And it's been published by the wonderful Chelsea Green. Um, and it's available, I think, anywhere the books are sold, certainly in the UK and the USA. Uh, we also have a website. Uh, so it's our, our name, limbrettcroft.co.uk. And we're on Instagram. Uh, we're on Facebook. Um, and yeah, check us out. And uh, yeah, ho hope, hope you like what we do. And uh, we just hope that, you know, our way of doing things um, can show another way. Uh, it's not the way. I don't ever believe there is one way, but it's just another way of, 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 of approaching how to to live in harmony with the land and, you know, warts and all, I guess. 
Marvelous, Lynn. I'll be sure to put all the links to what you mentioned there on the show notes in the episode on the, on the website. And I really look forward to staying in touch. I've been loving seeing the updates on your YouTube channel. They're really, really wonderfully done. And the progress is fantastic. I, I'm definitely going to keep in touch. Brilliant. I look forward to that. And I hope to, see, hope to welcome you here one day. Thanks once again to Lynn. I'll be posting all the links and contacts that they mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all the episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Well, that's our session for this week, so be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so you never miss an episode. And until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.